Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the DTD podcast. Tonight, I'm so excited. This has been in the works for about two months, and we finally got him here. Bill Ripier. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk about a lot of different things that we normally don't talk about on this show. Uh, and a big focus of it is going to be religion and how it has affected Bill's life and how he has kind of move through everything that he's done. He has an interesting story, and I can't wait to get into it. So, Bill, welcome into the studio. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, so here's the deal. I want to start with this quote, and this comes directly from your website. It says, Before I dive into any of the finer points of training to survive a violent confrontation, I should be clear on the most important thing, being right with God. Now, that's an interesting thing to see on someone who is teaching um, how to be a pretty dangerous person. Um, and the things that you've done in life have been dangerous. And I was told by another guest that I've interviewed, and they'll remain nameless because we did it off air. They told me that you're one of the most dangerous men on the planet, that it is scary how dangerous you are. So I want to start out with just asking you, how do those two things mesh in your life and how do they come together to form you? So first off, it's one of the things that people think is a contradiction. Um, and, and it's really just this, uh, uh, I'd say a misunderstanding or, or kind of where the state of modern evangelicalism is right now is where guys think or, or or overall, I would say that people think that if you're a Christian, you're you're uh, you're and specifically a Christian man, you're some sort of milk toast, uh, you know, go along to get along, um, don't ever seek conflict, uh, and I mean, at the end of the day, that's just that's not biblical. Uh, if we look at, uh, I mean, they wrote songs about David, right? Saul is slain as thousands, and David is tens of thousands. Uh, so they literally wrote songs and sang them about him, uh, about, you know, about his warrior prowess. Uh, and yet he was a man after God's own heart. You know, not that he didn't have faults. He had many, many faults, serious faults, uh, but was very, uh, yeah, the, the two are not mutually ex exclusive. And, and I understand that because I, I, I watched an interview with you and, and I want to go back to your childhood, but I want to point this out. I watched an interview with you where you were talking about when you were with the SEALs and when you were going through kind of selection and stuff. And one of the questions that the psychologist asked you was, uh, and I'm going to kind of paraphrase it, but religion is super important to you. So how can this be a job where you're going to take a life? How can those two things match? And it, I, I, I'm guessing the question was posed to you because they were trying to knock you off kilter a little bit to see what you would say. And you mentioned the same things that you did just now. Um, how did that go over with that psychologist of you saying something like that? Uh, the, the, for the psychologist, it was a got me, you know, kind of a gotcha question. He, right. he thought that he could quote the 10 commandments and, and specifically uh, the King James version of the 10 commandments, which says thou shalt not kill. Um, which if, if you look at the ancient Hebrew text, uh, they use a, a, a word that is much more commonly used for murder than it is um, for just killing. I mean, just like we have words for, you know, killing and then murder and manslaughter, the ancient Hebrews have the same thing. And so if you look at any of the modern translations, uh, they all translate it as thou shalt not murder uh, because it's just, it's, 
they're, they're two separate things. So while the King James version isn't technically wrong, because if you're murdering someone, you are killing them. But if you're killing someone, you're not necessarily murdering them. Uh, and so I explained that and then, you know, told, told the story about, you know, King David and, and them writing songs about him. And I, I said that if, if, uh, you know, if David could do that and be a man after God's own heart, I don't see why I couldn't do the same thing. And the, the psychologist didn't like the question. All the team guys in the room were like <laughs> nodding their heads like, yes. <laughs> and, and I think you're right. Uh, it, it seems funny. Um, in, the, in the job that I do right now, we have to take a psychological evaluation like once a year, once every two years. And I've never seen them really throw a question like that. Now, they will say things like you'll take a test and it'll say what you what your strong traits are, what your weak traits are. But what I feel like he was trying to do there was see if he could separate kind of the man from the soldier. Would that be a correct analysis of it? That either that or just looking for inconsistencies. I mean, it, I think it is a very valid thing. I mean, I every time we do a mindset talk in, in, in training, it's that that I bring up that example uh, during the willingness talk because it's such a if, if if you think deep down inside that all killing is wrong, then that could lead to hesitation and that hesitation can lead to regret uh either regret due to inaction or regret due to overaction and so and, and really that gets to the heart of the whole willingness question if you don't think through your willingness ahead of time you end up with regret and uh so it's a it is a it's a valid thing for him to bring up it is something you know it just it, it goes back to uh like are is your belief system congruent because if if you're on 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 if on one day you're you're spouting yeah, I'm, I'm a, you know, warrior, soldier, uh, you know, operator, however you want to put it. And then, and then on Sundays you're saying, well, all that stuff is wrong. Then that's going to create some pretty serious inconsistencies in your life. So I think he's, he was absolutely within his right to go after that. You know, if he, you know, I, I just think he had a lack of understanding in that area. And I, I want to point out to people that may not know you, I don't know how they couldn't have heard of you, but you know, you spent 20 years in the Navy. Uh, you spent um, a majority of that time in the SEALs and then 14 of those years with development group, which is, we can say it, the elite of the elite. Um, but your childhood is what really was, uh, it, it was really interesting to me when I looked into your childhood. Now you were born in Portland. Um, you don't talk about that a lot now because of everything that's going we, on. We don't there. like to mention that. <laughs> so you moved around a lot. You moved to Southern California, Germany, San Jose, Swaziland, Colorado Springs. You were all over the place. Now, the reason that you moved around was because your parents were missionaries. Um, and so you grew up in a house that was, I would, I would guess, very religious um, and very faith-based. But I want to know how that kind of sets you on your path, because as when we talked before we started recording, if you look at it just from the outside, it does seem like uh, like you would maybe follow in your father's footsteps and or your mother's footsteps and and be a missionary and spread the word. But you decided to spread the kind of the word in a different way, because any of well, and, and we'll get to that later on. But what I mean is, uh, even with SEALs that have been stationed with you, that worked with you, said that you were very steadfast in your faith, that you talked to them about it if they wanted to talk about it. You were never afraid to approach a subject that a lot of people wouldn't approach. So I want to talk about your childhood and how that kind of formed 
uh, this resiliency in you to never be afraid of your faith and to always be in a kind of a different atmosphere because that's what you were in the seals and di different atmospheres, different countries, different cultures all the time, how it made you a better, uh, seal soldier and kind of a man. Oh, that's, that's, that's loaded right there. Um, <laughs> I guess for, for one, the, uh, you know, my parents were always very supportive. Uh, they, they've said with, with, you know, myself and with my siblings that they wanted to encourage uh, our bent in life. Kind of, we, we all have a, a natural direction kind of that we're going. And I, I really believe that that's, you know, God lays that on your heart. I, I would say that uh, for me, you know, you know, being a frogman, that was something that I was designed to do. Uh, I've got pictures of me being five or six years old with, you know, an old army jacket from my dad on and, uh, you know, an old single barrel shotgun, you know, and a beret <laughs> and a painted on beard. And, you know, so it's, it's one of those things that, you know, from as, as long as I can remember, I wanted to do some, some sort of soldiering job. Now the, the question was always what, uh, you know, in what capacity would that look like? Uh, would it be, you know, for a long time, I wanted to go to, uh, to a service academy specifically to West Point, And then kind of towards the end of high school, I, I, no longer wanted to go to school and, and, you know, kind of fell off of that path. And then when I decided I was going to enlist, the question really just turned into, uh, what service am I going to join? And, and really, I just, I, I read up on it a lot and I, I was looking for the hardest organization to get into with the highest likelihood of seeing action. And I think, you know, I didn't always think this at the time, but uh, I think in, you know, in retrospect now, I think I chose the right, you know, made, made the right decision. Uh, so, yeah, my, my parents were always very, very encouraging with, uh, you know, with with the direction that I was going. And, and again, it was just it was never a it was really interesting. I actually had never even met any, you know, kind of, quote unquote, Bible believing Christians that thought that all killing was wrong uh, until much, much later on in, in, in my career. No, I just didn't, you know, I, it was always, I was always brought up with the, you know, the, the concept that murder is, you know, murder is wrong, but killing to protect your family or killing in battle is, that's not a sin. Uh, you know, when, when you say that though, we, we go back to that same thing again, where, um, where we talk about this family that was brought up, your parents were never against this, against you joining uh, the military at all. Um, and you said that you wanted to go to a service academy. Now, was it just because you got to the end of school and like a lot of people, you're just like, yeah, four more years of school's not for me. Because when you actually did choose where you were going to go in the military, you chose a very rough path to get to where you finally got to. It took you a lot, about two years longer to get there than the average person. Um, and so I, I can see where the medical, where you chose the medical that, that, that fits into kind of that missionary lifestyle, the, the saving, the, the, it is, actually with, has nothing to do with nothing that. to do with it. <laughs> Here's my uh, the, the the reason why I chose Corman. So okay. for, for the the non Navy or Marine Corps folks listening, Corman is is what the Navy calls a medic. Uh, so at, at the time when I joined, in order to go into the SEAL teams, or in order to even go to Buds, you had to have a what they called a SEAL source rating, or you know, in the Army would be an MOS, military occupational specialty, uh, and 
they, they the idea was they wanted jobs that were somewhat applicable. So, you know, welders, electricians, like uh, Intel guys, radio guys, medics. Uh, so all, there, there's a list of like 20 or 30 different source ratings that, that they had at the time. So honestly, the only reason I picked Gorman, not, it was not because I liked doing medicine uh, or had great <laughs> empathy for people. Because uh, <laughs> I really, uh, the, the more I did me the medicine stuff, the, the less I actually enjoyed the trauma side of it. I did not like the bedside manner side of, oh, my knee, doc, my knee hurts again. Like, take some Motrin, man. Like ice it and take some, you know, so, so, so I really, you were uh, lacking in empathy is what I'm taking from this. So, so the whole reason <laughs> I did it was, you know, just looking at it objectively, most guys don't make it through buds. Okay. If I didn't make it through buds as a corpsman, I could try and go with the Marine recon units. Um, and if I couldn't do that, at least I could still be with the Marine Corps infantry unit, uh, you know, as a, as a ground pounder because they, they take Navy corpsmen assigned to right. them. So that was really my, uh, that was my backup plan, really. That's actually what my nephew does for the Navy. Uh, and he okay. went to both Navy corpsman school and then went to Marine Corps so that he could be uh, yep. utilized in both, both worlds. Uh, you also did the Special Forces Medical School, though, right? I did the SOMAD, Special Operations Medical Course, uh, also called the Short Course. And then uh, I, I thought it was funny when you were talking about it, you said that um, they told you, "Hey, this is what uh, this is what doctors learn. This is you're going to learn what doctors learn." And then you actually went into the trauma section, and uh, you heard a doctor kind of spitting out everything going on. And you said, "I understood every single thing. I might not have keyed onto it, but I understood every single thing he was saying." Uh, so it, it seemed to work out well for you, though. How did it transfer over as an actual seal? Did you 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 never really utilize that that skill? Correct. No, by uh, so the, the Navy or the, the SEAL teams in particular were lacking in corpsmen. So when I went when I went in, um, I, I think we had maybe twenty percent or thirty percent of our buds class was corpsmen. I mean, there there was a phase where like fifty percent of all buds classes were were corpsmen. Uh, it's just because they were trying to get corpsmen through. And so by the time I went through, uh, like when I went through SEAL tactical training, I wasn't even the corpsman for, for our unit. I, I was a machine gunner. And then I got into my first <laughs> platoon and I told them, I'm a machine gunner. I'm not really a corpsman. And they laughed at me and they said, you have to be a corpsman. And then my second platoon, there was enough corpsmen that, that were into being corpsmen that when I told them I, I'm really a machine gunner, just pretending to be a corpsman, um, they let me carry a machine gun. So that was, uh, that was much more my kind of my mentality. I, I enjoyed doing that. Yeah. Uh, you, you're more of a, and, and everything I've heard from you, you, you are very much more of a hands-on kind of guy, uh, and, and directly interacting. Now, interesting to me about it was you spent the majority of your time, um, with development group, uh, and, yeah. and that, I've I've interviewed seals before and stuff like that, but you seem to have gone to them pretty quickly in your career, uh, especially being all the schools that you had to go to to get just in the pipeline and stuff like that. It seems like you went over there very quickly. So I had I had a couple of things going for me. First off, uh, when I left or when I graduated from 18 Delta, uh, we'd heard through the rumor mill that that an SCT class had just started at SEAL Team 3. So a lot of the guys were like, well, I'm just going to go on leave then because I'm just going to be sitting around there. I didn't have a life. So I just drove, I, I graduated and just drove out there. Just, I'm like, well, well what else am I going to do? 
I check in, I talk to the, uh, the, the, the training senior chief and, and he goes, well, shoot, uh, you know, we've all, we're only two weeks into this and all we've covered is medical stuff. So you haven't missed anything. <laughs> so I got to jump right in with, with an STT class. Uh, and it, it ended up putting me like six to nine months ahead of my peer group wow. th- that I had graduated 18 Delta from, which was, you know, n- nice because I wanted to, you know, get after it and deploy. And, you know, I, I mean, the, the whole reason why most team guys join the teams, you want to go to war. Well, we didn't have a war going on at the time. So it was, well, let's you know do an ARG deployment and at least maybe you can do something cool. Uh, so I got right into a platoon after STT, did that first platoon, came back from that platoon and they told me they, they needed a guy to go deploy again right away. And I'm like, yep, that's, that's me. Uh, and they, they actually were, were misinformed. It was actually, they need a guy to leave for the desert to, to begin a workup immediately. <laughs> so I think I had like one or two days home and then I was back out at Nyland in the desert for like another month doing another land warfare workup. But that, again, that, that really bumped me ahead because most, most of the time guys get back from a deployment and they've got a, you know, month or so worth of leave and then, and then kind of six months of individual level training. And then, and then they jump back into unit level training. Um, so so that was helpful for me. And then I, I had heard early on, uh, you know, I had no clue what that group was when I, when I joined the Navy. And then as soon as I got to SEAL team three, I started hearing little, little whispers and I, it, you know, couldn't say it as, as a brand new guy, because they tell you, you know, focus on being a, a new, a good new guy first. Uh, but I knew right away. I'm like, that's, that's where I want to go. Uh, so I, I just lined everything up. I screened to go to the dev group after my first deployment and then screened positive. They actually asked me to change rates, which I was very happy to do. I signed a blank piece of paper, and a couple months later, our our <laughs> officer in charge says, "Oh yeah, by the way, you're a radioman now." And then uh, a couple months after that, he, he found me again. Was like, "Oh yeah, by the way, you're an IT now. There's no more radioman." Uh, they they merged all these rates, so uh, yeah, it ended up it 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 was helpful. So so the blank piece of paper. <laughs> did you ever see it again? Did it ever appear in your file? Did it, did it ever have no, actual it was, words it was on something, it? It was, it was a blank form for like, for changing rates basically. <laughs> and it was, uh, there was, a like the career counselor, I believe he was, uh, yeah, he sounds like he was great at his another, job. <laughs> yeah. It was, he was another team guy. It was a collateral duty for another team guy. And so he's just like, here, man, sign this piece of paper. Um, you know, we'll find something else for you. And I really didn't care. I was just like, Hey, put me in a rate that's open, you know, that I can advance in, that I can make rank in. And, uh, so made me a radioman. Now, all the different positions that you held, you did 10 plus combat, uh, <clears throat> tours. You were a salter, breacher, sniper team leader, troop chief, uh, military working dog, uh, department senior enlisted advisor. So many different things. Did you just, I know you said that you didn't have a life, but did you just jump at every single thing they, they said, Hey, this is open. Well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, there was uh, like, you're expected as, as a new guy, especially at the command, you're expected as a new guy to jump on every trip. Um, And I didn't have a wife or girlfriend or anything when I first got there. I mean, I, I literally, I shot every single day for the first four months I was at the command, like Saturdays and Sundays included, because when I checked or, you know, when I, when I actually, you know, checked into where I was going after selection, they said, Oh yeah, here's uh 
this, you know, here's your range that you can use 365, 24 seven. Here's where you get your bullets from. Wow. And I was just like, Oh, cool. Uh, you know, so I, I would, I would show up every, you know, every morning, you know, hour, hour and a half before work started and burn through about 500 rounds. Uh, and then, you know, Saturdays I'd go, I'd normally go in after, after jujitsu. Cause I, I do jujitsu like 10 or so in the morning on, on Saturdays. And then Sundays, go to church, have a nice breakfast after church and then drive, drive back to the command and train more. Um, so it was just kind of a, you know, I, I didn't have a whole lot going on back then. So I wanted to jump on every trip out there. So were you training by yourself? Were there other guys out there with you? Was it a lot of, uh, alone time out there? What, what was it? Because the, the way I picture you is kind of the Kung Fu guy, just on your own, concentrating on what you're doing not not in meditation but just kind of taking in each moment is that how it was or were you training with other people what what was it It, it, i mean it really depended like i mean the if you're doing anything you know unit or 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 team level training your guys are with you you know if you're doing but it's like anything else if you want to actually get good at something you have to put in the hours on your own as well and so sometimes there would be guys with me that you know like kind of my peers that Hey man, let's, let's hit the range again tomorrow morning. You know, we'll meet at this time. I mean, I was, you know, that's iron sharpens iron. It's a good, if you can get your buddies to do that stuff with you, that's great, but you can't always do that. So you have to be willing to do it by yourself if, if they won't show. Now, when you go there, you said they show you, this is where the ammo's at. This is where your range is at. Is it, is it pretty much whatever you want? Any kind of ammo, any kind of weapon system or. Well, I mean, like we, you have your, 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 nor- your normal stuff that you're running with. Um, so at the time it was two, two sixes and, you know, shorty M fours was the you know primary that we were using. So, um, then I start breaching maybe two years into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so start carrying a little, uh, shorty eight seventy as well. Um, and, but then, you know, so that, that, that was the stuff, like if, if you're going day in and day out to shoot, you know, it, it, it's pistol and M fours, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I had various different machine guns throughout the years and, but you're not going to, you know, you're not going to the seven meter range to blast, you know, blast the saw. <laughs> like, <Right. you> know, <laughs> that doesn't help a whole lot. Right. Yeah. Uh, so when in your career did you start kind of, as you say, getting a life? Because I want to see how they kind of blended together. So probably about the time that I met my wife, you know, wife to be, um, you know, I started not doing jujitsu every single night and hanging out with her, some, you know, and, you know, then that kind of just, it, you know, transitioned from, I mean, I, I went through, I went through a phase where, you know, I, if I was in town, I was rolling every single night. And then as you, as I started, you know, being serious about, you know, dating my wife and then, uh, we had a pretty short engagement because we were on a pretty hectic deployment cycle at the time. Uh, yeah, that's, you know, so I, I got married in 07 and, and then, uh, things drastically changed at that point because now it's no longer, you know, it's, it's no longer the unit first it's, it's, you know, it's God and then the wife and then the unit. You run into trouble with that? Yeah, to some extent. Well, I, so again, like well, one of the things that was was helpful for me was uh, 
the fact that I was able to put in a lot of time. So even as the guy that like, I didn't go out drinking with the guys, but I still like the first couple of years, especially like I put in the time with the guys that did go out. I mean, I mean, it's a big cultural thing. Like guys don't trust you if you're not hanging out with them, yep. you know, uh, you know, during work and after work. So, uh, just the fact that I would, you know, go hang out with the dudes and, you know, designate drive if we're on trips, uh, that was, you know, I kind of had some, some street cred, so to speak with the guys. So then when it was, Hey, I'm, I'm married now. Like it was kind of a, well, of course I don't want to hang out with you guys you know, down, down at the bar. Like I'm married now. Like, <laughs> So, um, w- when I say trouble, d- do you ever find that, that it becomes a big conflict? And, and the reason I say that is because whether you're in law enforcement, whether you're in the military, there are times where you're away a lot. Um, and, and it's unavoidable to be away. So one, you have to have a very strong foundation and what I see, whether it be in law enforcement or when I was in the military, there's not that strong foundation there. And you see a lot of things fall apart when these guys are gone. We used to make the joke over in the 25th that you could always tell when a unit was, was deploying to go to the field or whatever, uh, because the bar on post would be completely full. The parking lot would be completely full. So you knew at least one unit was going to the field or whatever. How did you work through that? And did you help other people kind of see like, hey, man, this is the way you want to do it without being, you know, without without being teacherish to them? Yeah, I, I do think it's something that... Uh... It's easy for guys to get sucked into the life because, I mean, ultimately, it's pretty cool. Like, you know, there's times where you're going to, you know, major cities and you're flying around in helicopters. And I mean, it's it, it, there's some rock star treatment that, that, that goes with that. I mean, especially it's just, seals. It's cool for, for sure. Um, I mean, you're you know, you're, you're you're doing stuff, you know, till 10, 11 at nighttime. And then and then guys will hit the bar and they'll see like footage on on the news of of them like fast roping on top of buildings like you know at at the bar and so there's some you know there's there's definitely some cool factor there um and i think very easy for guys to get seduced into like this is the life and and uh i i would try and remind guys that hey man like your 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 family you you think you're indispensable right now and when you leave a few months later, they'll be like, who is that guy? Right. Two years later, you walk into your, your team room and like a bunch of new guys will be eyeballing you. Like, who's this dude that's walking into my team room, <laughs> you know, and it's just the, the train keeps going and it's, you know, no one, no one's indispensable. Like you think you are at the time, um, but your families should always be there for you. And if you treat them properly, then usually they will be there for you. But if you, if you get too seduced by the life uh, that, that you start thinking, well, this is more important, uh, you know, it can cause big problems. I mean, I, once I got married, I told my wife, Hey, if this is, if this is too much, like I'll leave, this is not, you know, the, the kind of the opposite of the mindset, which I heard a lot is she knew what she was getting into when she married me. This is me. Well, that, uh, let's talk about that for a minute, Bill, because that, that's a that's not a normal approach to it. Because you're right, a lot of people will say that, like, "Hey, you knew what you were getting into. I told you who I was," and I think a lot of people feel that if if they change for that, like, step away from that life, 
that they're not being who they are. And that leads to trouble in another sense uh, where maybe there's some resentment later on or whatever. And so it's, it's crazy to hear that, that, that that was your approach right off the bat. Like, Hey, if you're ready for me to leave, like, did you have a plan? Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do? Or were you just like, Hey, no, I mean, I, I want I mean, we, we got married was, uh, right after my team leader. Oh, actually I was still a team leader. Uh, so I still did one more pump as a team leader. Um, you know, right after we got married and I mean, I, you know, was really liking the job, wanted to keep doing the job, but, uh, I mean, it's just a, you know, in life, you have to order what, what are the priorities for you, you know? And, and when I say it's God, family, country, that's, you know, I'm serious about that. <laughs> you know, like God is more important than my wife. My wife is more important than my kids are. And, and my family is more important than the country is or my unit or, or anything else. Uh, and if, when, when you deviate from that, your, your world falls apart, right? If you start placing, you know, now as a civilian, if you start placing, making dollars, over time with family, you know, or over your faith, like your, your whole life falls apart. So it has to go. Yeah. I think it's just, it's, it's comforting and it's, it's very, I honestly, I think it's a very simple approach just to go, well, here's, this is the most important thing in my life. This is the next most important thing. This is the next most important thing. And I'm just going to order everything around that. And you know, I, if you, I, if you do that, it's, it's much easier to stay. We have what we call a stay on mission. What, you know, what is the mission? Absolutely. But why do you think it is so hard for, I would say, I don't know if I want to say the majority, but for a vast number, why is it so hard to take that approach? I think most guys, because they haven't thought it through, which is again, why mindset is so, so important. If you, cause if you sit a guy down and you say, Hey man, what is more important to you? Right. On, on the guy, you know, the, the guy's getting ready to get married. Say, hey man, is your you know you getting married? Do you want to have do you want to have a family? Do you want to have kids? Is 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 that more important to you, or is your job more important to you? I think most guys at that point will say, no, my, my you know my wife is going to be more important to me. My kids are going to be more important to me. So it's it's normally a I think e- easy to to say right there, but then it's the the actions at the time. And then that really is the, the harder part is is because it's never really, you know, they, they never ask you to, to, to come out and say work is more important than, than family. But, but they ask every day by saying, Hey, come on this extra trip. Like we need a volunteer and you want to be a good dude and volunteer to go do stuff. You want to fill that extra shift, you know, whatever, whatever it is, you, you want to be that guy and step up. And if you, if you think about it, like if, if you value what they think of you more than you do your relationship with your family, it ends up causing problems for you. And so, but if you think about it ahead of time, then you can go, man, I'd really like, I'd like to go on this trip. And maybe even I understand that like, I'm going to lose some face with this or like maybe a little bit of credibility if I don't do this, but my wife really needs to be me to be home right now, or my kids need me to be home right now. Um, And that's more important to me. So Okay, that's that's where we're at. And really, I think if, if more guys did that, you'd end up with a healthier force long term because you wouldn't have guys that are on their second and third, sometimes fourth marriages. Uh, you know, I mean, they, they there's there's a lot of talk about about the health of the force and, you know, trying to keep families together. 
but then it's, Hey, run, run at this crazy, crazy pace and, you know, and keep the wives shut out of everything. And instead of going, well, no, if we're truly a family centric, if, you know, if we want to keep the guy healthy, we need to keep the family healthy. So my next set of questions would be, and these are going to be kind of loaded. So just be ready because of how you were saying, I want you to be ready for that. I think the military and, and in that sense, first responders, I think that those things do a horrible job of doing exactly what you said, because there's that mentality that if you're not up for this and you're not up for this, or you want to take a step back for a while and breathe uh, and, and just experience some stuff around you, maybe slow it down a little bit that there's that mentality that you're not doing your, you're not doing your part. You're not doing your job. Would you agree that the military does a horrible job of that? For, for the most part. Well, I mean, I can't speak for the whole military. Uh -oh. I can speak for, for our organization and, and say, absolutely. Yes. Uh, yeah. In fact, it's funny. I was training with a, a, a different military organization uh, earlier this year and some of the cultural things that that they had going on i was absolutely blown away by uh in in a good sense just where they were you know allowed to bring wives on trips and uh i just i was shocked because culturally that was not something uh you know that we were ever permitted or <laughs> let alone encouraged to do uh you know so i thought that was a, a great uh you know, a great step in the right direction that here they're taking care of these guys by trying to support family units. And so what do you think with the next part, what do you think that the military could do better? Now, the reason I ask you law, uh, law enforcement, first responder military, because you train a lot of law enforcement. So I know you're talking to them on the side. You're talking to them after training's done. I'm sure I'm positive that you hear the same things that you heard in the military. What can be done to move in that direction? I think it's just a, it's a cultural shift away from, from thinking, Hey, you have to, you know, setting out the career progression you have to hit these wickets in order to advance. Um, you know, you still, I mean, as, as a, as an organization, you want guys to hit certain wickets, but you need to have lateral moves for guys so that they can go. Okay. If, if, if you've been running hard for the last six or seven years and you need a break uh, and maybe you don't even think you need a break, maybe you need to be told you need a break. You're going to shift laterally for, you know, two years and basically go, go into a training environment, go into some sort of an environment where you're home. If not every night, most, most nights, uh, and then jump back into that pipeline, so to speak, of now now you're back on the track without having any negative um, effects on your career. And that's that's something that a lot of guys, um, or at least what I saw, that that wasn't really there. Or at least you know may, maybe it was there, and I just uh, you know I, I did look at it negatively. If you know guys went and did you know training gigs, uh, you know I. I did. And, uh, see, is that some, some parts of me, I look back on that now and I'm like, well, maybe that would have actually been a good thing to do at a certain point. So <clears throat> when, when you're training now, because like looking at your schedule, I, I wrote down just for a couple of months. I mean, you have lots of classes now you seem to spread them out. You'll, you'll do two months and take a month off and, 
and train for another two months with, you know, three or four days a month. Um, how do you do that with family now? Do you, do they come along with you? Do you, how does that work out? So the, the biggest thing that I have, uh, that, that I've been learning over the last year and a half now is just to say no, uh, you know, cause it, it went from, you know, when I first retired and started doing this business, it was just, man, if someone wanted to do a, a training event someplace, like, you know, I was, tr you know, trying to get after. And, and then honestly, like at first it wasn't that much, you know, I mean, it takes a while to kind of get, get the name out there and get, get your own business established. Uh, but now we're at the point where I've turned over a dozen things down already this year, just like good, good things that I would have liked to have done. And I just, I don't have the bandwidth to do it. And I, I just look at it and I go, okay, well, like this is the dollar amount that, that I would gain from it, but I don't really, I don't need that. Um, but you know what? My kids are, they're growing up really fast. Like they need me around. And so as much as I would, you know, maybe I'd even like to go do this because they're, they seem like good guys or, or you know, in some cases I know the guys and they are good guys and I'd, I'd love to go train them. I just, I have to look at it and go, well, I'm going to disappoint someone. I'd rather disappoint, you know, a buddy that, that wants some firearms training than my children. And that, you know, and, and when you put it like that, you're like, well, of course, you know, but, but sometimes you have to have that talk with yourself and say, Hey, well, this is, these are the options. Like I can, I can disappoint someone that, you know, will be able to find other training. It's not like they're going to die if they don't train with me. Um, or, you <laughs> you're going to feel really bad if they do, but <laughs> I, I would feel really bad. Um, you know, so I either disappoint that guy or I disappoint my children. And then also like, you know, we're talking about duty. What's what, where does my primary duty, where does my primary allegiance lie? Is it with guys that I'm training or does it lie with my family? I mean, and there's, there's some both of, of both of that. Cause Absolutely. I mean, I've got, I've got really, really good friends. I mean, half the places I go and train now, uh, you know, buddies pick me up at the airport and I stay at their house. I mean, I'm like, you know, a lot of these guys have become really good friends to me. Um, you know, so there definitely, there is some allegiance there. Uh, but also like, I mean, all, all those guys, if you sat down and you explained to them, Hey man, like I just, I need to spend more time with my kids right now. Uh, you know, also I have a pregnant wife and, you know, like all those things that's, uh, you know, I think it's it, when you, when you sat down and, and you think about it in those terms, I think it's easier to do that. And, and I have now with my oldest boy, I've started bringing him on some of the trips now. Um, he actually just got to go with me to the modern warrior conference, which is awesome. Um, we opened it up to some of the guys who have boys that are our, our kids age. So that was a really cool dynamic of, you know, having him and a couple other boys around his age there, you know, just getting reps in, hanging out with men, um, you know, good, you know, I would have loved to do that stuff when I was a kid. Well, do they look at you as a, as a rock star now? your kids because i know my kids look at my podcast as i'm an idiot so uh <laughs> <laughs> they're like yeah it's awesome great i'll i'll tell everybody you know and, and i get yeah, it i mean it's, ultimately you're i'm dad you know I yeah mean, there's no uh you know it does, doesn't matter you know doesn't matter what you know how amazing or unamazing you are <laughs> like to your kids your dad <laughs> you know it's, well now just, now, now here's the thing. If people don't know this, you have six kids. 
Six and another one on the way. Okay. That that's mind boggling to me, first off. Because I have three daughters and I don't know how you do that's like doubled up. Like they've got you guys pinned down for sure. They outnumber you. It actually gets easier with number four. It, it gets easier. And then five way easier. Six. Okay. All right. So you're going to have to explain this because <laughs> seriously, I have three and at no point did I go, Oh, with three. Yeah. It's pretty easy. Yeah. It's, it's a lot easier than having none or one. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, so we were blessed. Our, our first was a girl, and so she does actually help. She cooks. She she helps take care of her her brothers, um, and then you know I, I jokingly say that it gets easier, but but to some extent, I mean they the, the the kids play with each other. You know, they're they're best friends and worst enemies either simultaneously or you know every couple minutes. You know, it's but they you know, for the most part, they're, they're great friends and they, you know, they're constantly running around in the woods and just doing, you know, doing things that, that little kids are supposed to be doing. Yeah. I have three daughters, so, uh, I have no, just, I, I'm, I know that I did something in the past that I'm, I'm paying for right now, uh, because two of them are teenagers. One is getting to that age and I'm telling you, it's a, it's a lot. So when you say you have six, I, I guess the point of that is when you say they play together, because of course that happens and, and they're out in the woods, you seem to me to have a very, as busy as your life is, a very simple life. You teach a very simple life to your to your kids, to your family, to the people that are around you that you train. They're out in the woods playing. Is is that a fair assessment of your life? Absolutely. I mean, we, we don't have a TV. I mean, we do watch yeah, especially Star Wars type shows. Kids, kids love any of the okay. any of the Star Wars stuff. Okay. Um, so we, we do watch some stuff on you know on a computer, uh, but no, we don't have TV. There's no video games. My, my my kids aren't even allowed to be at other kids' houses if they're playing video. If there's any video game playing going on, they have to leave. Okay, um, which has been great. Uh, yeah, they, I mean they they run around. My my boys, my oldest two are riding dirt bikes now. So, uh, yeah, that that's been awesome to watch. I've pushed some dirt around with a tractor to make a, make a couple jumps for them, and you know they they like doing that. They like, I mean we've we've got a little farm, so shoot, right now we've probably got forty some sheep and a bunch of goats and you know a ridiculous amount of chickens right now, uh, and so you know there's 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 chores. They probably have, you know, hour or so of chores in the, in the morning and then you know shorter amount of chores in the evening. So, um, there's just, there, there's a lot going on. And then we're homeschooling too. So they're, you know, they're, they're doing school every day and you know, they're doing school today. Uh, so yeah, it's a pretty, you know, we, we encourage just you know, more, more, more simple life and, you know, running around. It's hard to keep shoes on those boys. Um, you know, and they, they all, run around quite a bit and they can start fires and shoot BB guns and, you know, kind of stuff that stuff that I think boys should do growing up. And then my daughter's riding. She has a horse now and spends a lot of time just training that horse doing the, um, I forget there's a fancy term for it, but basically lunging, lunging the horse, you know, so training it going in circles and then you oh, know, okay. riding and jump, jumping the horse and just kind of, like well, that's been such a great confidence thing for her going, you know, from being scared of this thing to like, you know, 
enforcing her will on this, you know, beast that is way bigger and stronger than her. So you have one girl, all boys, and then another one on the way, which congratulations on that one. Uh, Thank you. Do we know what the one on the way is yet? A girl. Okay. So you kind of bookended it. Uh, yes. So, um, I, I am glad that I had all girls. Uh, I've always said that I'm very glad that I had all girls. Um, I, I think it's taught me different stuff in life than, than I would have known. I think sometimes it teaches you, um, how to maybe treat people, uh, in a different way because, there's sensibilities that you, you have to kind of look out for. It's different friends. You know, it, it, I've never had boys, but I would imagine that if boys come over, you can be a little um, more direct and things like that. You have to learn how to be with a girl. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yes. And no, uh, I, I guess there's not that many girls that come over to okay. our house. So it's, 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 more, it's honestly much more, much more boys coming over. Um, and, and yeah, I am very direct with, with the boys, but honestly, I'm pretty direct with any of, you know, my daughter's friends as well, as far as, Hey, you guys, like you can't do this or. Oh, absolutely. You know, tell, tell, telling other people what to do has never been hard for me. Right. <laughs> so My wife tells me that too. So, <laughs> but it's not, you know, I, I thought everyone was like that and that's not the case. Some people it's really hard for to, you know, to, to go and like, other people's kids, you know, if, if I look at it as if your kids are hanging out at my house, I'm they're going to do like what you kid. say, like, you know, go help pick this up with my boys. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's so. not the world today. And that, that is, I'm, it's funny that you say that because I, I feel the same way. Like if you want to come over and you want to be part of this family, then you need to, you know, follow the same rules, follow the same guidelines, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I don't think a lot of people, and that's when I ask you a simple life. I don't think a lot of people look at it that way in life anymore. Um, I, I feel like, uh, we, we've become a very entitled world and I worry about that for my children and for generations past them. Um, I, I try to instill, hard work, dedication. You have to, if you want something, you have to earn it. It's not just given to you, but I feel like a lot of the world today is entitlement and, and I worry about the future and I know you have to worry about it too, especially with everything that you've done. Um, how do you take that approach? Cause I know your kids see other kids and they, they have to think that a little bit, right? They, have you ever heard them say like, well, they get to do this or they get to do this. Have they ever said that to you? I, I mean, yeah, they, I mean, they've, they've said that about some kids, but honestly, I mean, we just where we live, it's very much almost all of our friends are on some sort of, you know, acreage, little homestead type thing. Right. Almost everyone we know homeschools, you know, we all we kind of, our community is really tight. So, uh, there's not as much, you know, yeah, some, some kids are still allowed to play video games, even in our community. Um, but you know, for, I mean, uh, there, there's not a whole lot of that. I mean, we, I just go back to, well, Hey, this is, you know, you get to ride dirt bikes every day and, you know, have a, have a motocross track in your backyard. 
and shoot guns and you know we get to do cool stuff you ride snowmobiles in the wintertime and ski and like do all this awesome stuff and it's more awesome than what most people get to do however with that comes you have to do more work than most kids have to do you know because you know we can't take care of the farm by ourselves like our kids are an integral part of of taking care of the animals and you know, not the animals are making us any money. It's, it ends up being a lifestyle thing, but it's a cool lifestyle, you know, to be able to go, yeah, we're, um, you know, we eat meat from our own farm quite, you know, quite a bit. We do, you know, pigs every year. We do a run or two of meat birds every year. You know, we, we put a lot of lamb in the freezer now every year. So it's, uh, you know, with, with, a lot of privilege comes a lot of uh, responsibility, responsibility and a lot of hard work. Yeah, I I, I definitely think that. I, I think that uh, a lot of the world has gotten away from that, though, and, and I worry about it. If, if we could, can we go back to your military career a little bit? I, I, I want to talk about something um, that you stated about the Middle East, because I, I want to ask you about some stuff that's going on. Uh, you stated that we can't kill our way out of there. Um, in another interview that you did, yeah. Um, you, you believe? I mean, that, we 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 could absolutely. Just, That's what uh, I was just about to say. Like we could. It, it's it's. So first off, I I don't think this would be the right thing to do. But I mean, right. we could just just decide to nuke every major city over there and sink every ship and shoot down every airplane. Like we could do that kinetically. Um, we could. We we could kinetically impose our will like that. I, that would not be the morally right thing to do. Like I don't advocate right. for that plan um but we we could I, I guess what i'm what i mean is is within the limitations that we have you know within the worldview kind of within the state that the united states is in right now we do not have the will to do that or even to do anything close to that in order to win the reason I ask that is because we're hearing now that we're going to pull all troops out of Afghanistan, that, that we're going to pretty much leave a vacuum over there. And I've asked a couple of guests this before. Uh, I, I want to know your thoughts because you've spent time over there. Uh, good idea, bad idea. And the reason I ask you that is because the way you said that, that it wouldn't be the moral thing to do. We could do it kinetically, but just leaving and creating, like I said, a vacuum, I think creates way more problems in the end. Well, so the United States military is great at killing people, you know, breaking and destroying things. We are not great at doing nation building, you know, all that kind of stuff. When you look at when the war in Afghanistan first started, uh, it was a massive deal. You know, the first, I think Johnny Spann was one of the first guys that got killed. And then, you know, Roberts Ridge, a couple of our guys got killed up there. You know, Battle of Takagar. Uh, like, that was a huge deal. Everyone was talking about it. And then you fast forward to like 09-ish and multiple dudes were dying every single day. And like, people were like, oh, we're still fighting in Afghanistan. You know, people had totally forgotten about it. And, and... So in, in large part, I, I do think that, you know, we, we should leave a small, you know, United States presence there, mostly just to, you know, kind of have finger on the pulse and, and be ready to reinvade when, when the time comes. But I think if we just installed someone that's, that was, uh, uh, 
that we had an understanding with. Hey, keep the hardcore Islamists at bay. As long as you do that, we're going to support you. As soon as you stop doing that, uh, we're going to reinvade and do what the American military does well. Like go in and crush everyone. I mean, we, with, with a couple ODA teams at the beginning of the war, a couple ODA teams and, and a bunch of B-52s and, you know, F-18s, like crushed the whole country. Like, well, I think you were saying that an ODA team would show up and tanks and battalions would just turn and they'd run they would away, turn tail yeah. and run, run away. Yeah. There's, you know, there's stories of the guys riding up on, you know, over ridgelines on horseback and like everyone's, you know, thousands of people are fleeing before them, you know? Right. So it's like, let's, let's do what we do well. And that's just, you know, adopt a policy that is, if, if you harbor these people that, that want to destroy us, we're going to come in and crush you. And then when we're done crushing you, we're not going to rebuild your country. We're going to take a guy and, you know, we can have election, whatever you want to call it. We're going to take someone that's friendly to our cause that has enough support to, you know, not get overthrown the next day, put him in charge, you know, give him some, you know, low level of funding and support, and then move on to the next thing. I mean, that, that would have been so much cheaper in blood and treasure over the years. If you, if you just said, okay, how much money did we spend in Afghanistan, you know, for the first year of the war versus when they start figuring out that they can, you know, blow us up, you know, that, that IEDs are the preferred, you know, method of, of, of fighting the cheapest you know, and, and then, way and then to fight how many billion dollars worth of, you know, MRAPs. And, and all this stuff to counter just ancient, ancient technology. Um, why not just, you know, no, we just reinvade, you know, to take the Israeli approach of just, you know, have an understanding that we're not going to change these people. They hate us, period. Like we're not, we can't make them love us. It's not going to happen. So stop trying and just accept the fact that maybe every 10 or 15 years, you got to cut the grass. And then what does grass do? <laughs> It grows Gross. back yeah. and then we cut the grass again and we don't, we don't, don't stop trying to turn this into Germany or Japan post-World War II. Like that's not going to happen in these places in unless not, um, you know, Eric Prince floated some, I think really fascinating ideas of you know, create a viceroy position. That's like a 10 or 20 year position. And you know, cause that's another huge problem that, that we have over there was the, the constant turnover I and mean, you get a general in charge for the first two or three months. He doesn't want to change anything because he's, he's getting his feet on the ground. Then he wants to change a bunch of things because now he thinks he's the smartest guy alive. And then, you know, and then he, you know, makes a few mistakes, you know, d d changes one or two things. And then, oh, now he's only got three more months to go before his, his tour is over. Like, I don't want to screw anything up, uh, you know, and so nothing gets done and there's zero consistency. So if you did, you know, take that, that viceroy position, I think that would be, uh, a better chance of, of long-term success if we did want to do that, which I would be against, you know, staying and, you know, occupying the country for a long period of time. I just would like to point out since you're a star Wars fan that the Viceroy position <laughs> did not work out well for a lot of different things. It did not. It, it did not. Uh, trade federations, all that kind of stuff did not. Now we're nerding out a little bit, so we probably lost some people. But I'm just saying the viceroy position maybe didn't work that well. The British East India Company worked for a while, though. And they had you know similar type type models where they had a little bit more consistency in their uh, 
in their dealings with with local people. So I want to talk about when you left the service. And I want to talk about why. And then I want to wrap it back into religion again, because I had some thoughts that came to my mind when I heard you talk about it. Why'd you leave? When I... I remember when I first got to SEAL Team 3, and I remember looking at guys that were 18-year guys at the time. I'm and glad you were talking about this. They had never done anything for real, and I was terrified that that would be me. Uh, because at the time, you know, there were some guys that had done some stuff. You know, there's a couple guys that had, you know, blown up Noriega's yacht, <laughs> your combat swimmer op. There were some guys, you know, that, that went on Patia Airfield. Um, there, there's a couple other little things that had happened, you know, some stuff in Somalia. Uh, but by and large, there had been no no real war since Vietnam. And so the guys, the guys that were 18 year guys when I was a new guy had been trained by Vietnam guys, um, but they hadn't they'd never done anything. And so my, you know, initially, I just thought, man, if I one real mission, like, I'll, you know, I'll be happy. And then how quickly things change. I mean, I remember at one point sitting, yeah, <laughs> fast forward to 2003, sitting in a, in a hangar in, I, in Baghdad going, man, like this war is getting so lame. Like it's been four hours and we haven't done anything because <laughs> you know, it was, you know, we we're doing a lot of work, uh, you know, so, so things change. Um, yeah, there was, there was a couple, I mean, like we'd kind of seen serious, uh, things go really good for us in the war and then things go really negative for us in the war. Um, when Obama became president, one of the things I thought was pretty demoralizing was they, they, we stopped going after Islamic ex extremists and they changed it to VEOs, violent extremist organizations. That was, that was very demoralizing to me because if, if we can't even name who we're fighting, how on earth are we going to win? How are we going to make a, a comprehensive U.S. foreign policy if we won't even name the fact that we're fighting Muslims? Uh, that's, you know, that that's a huge problem. I mean, during the Cold War, we said, hey, we're fighting communists. The communists state that they want world domination. You know, they think communism is going to win. So we're going to make a policy to, to beat that. And then we have Obama saying that ISIS is un-Islamic. ISIS, ISIS is extremely Islamic. You know, the ISIS and Al-Qaeda are the ones that are actually doing what the Quran tells them to do. The other ones, the ones that we would say are, are quote unquote, the, the good ones or, you know, the moderate Muslims, they're just, they are not actually following what their book tells them to do. Uh, and, and really, I mean, it's, it's good for us that most of them don't actually follow it. They're more just what I would consider cultural Muslims than, than, you know, hardcore committed Muslims. Um, so anyway, so, so that was discouraging to me and then just kind of looking at it and seeing, you know what, we're not going to, you know, with the, with the direction it's going, like we're, we're not going to kill our way to victory here. Um, also, and I, I got to do a lot of cool stuff like, and, and I'd been doing it for a while and then I was married and wanted to be around more. And uh, I felt like, Hey, that's, that is where I want to, pour my time and energy into, into my wife and into my children and into my local community. And, um, I, I think there's more return on investment, you know, that to use the, uh, the real estate term, 
you know, what, what is, you know, when you look at a piece of property, like what is this property's highest and best use? That is something that I try and do, you know, self analytically from time to time. Like, am I, am I, you, you know, I've got what, 35, 40 years left, right? In that 35, 40 years, am, am I, you know, am I being used to my highest and best purpose? And ultimately for, for, for me, that what, what determines that is, is, am I, am I giving God glory? Cause that's, that's why I was created. I mean, that's why all of us were created was for his glory. And, um, so if that, that's why we were created, then, you know, how, how do we do that? Well, by, by loving God and by loving other people, uh, part of loving other people is loving your wife, loving your children, you know, and raising them to know and love Jesus. Um, and then, you know, being involved in the community, trying to, uh, you know, I, I have a phenomenal platform where, you know, I get to, to present the gospel to a bunch of local boys and, and train jujitsu with them and, you know, shoot with them and, you know, go in the mountains with them and just do cool stuff. And it's like, I just look at that as, as so much more impactful than, you know, doing another deployment and smacking targets. Uh, you know, that was cool at the time, but you know, every once in a while I still miss it a little bit, but for the most part, I'm like the, what I am doing now, I, I think is more important. So here's my question. I started thinking about that. I, I, I watched you talk about that in an interview and it really started me thinking with as important as religion is to you and with the way you speak about what the Quran teaches, what Islam teaches, what, what the majority of Muslims, was it different for you? Did it have a different meaning? Did, did the battles, did, did the war that we've been fighting for 20 years, does it mean something different to you than the average person? I, I think in some ways, Yes. I mean, there, there is, I mean, and in part, just because I did really educate myself on, um, you know, what, what does our enemy actually believe? Um, so I think, you know, a lot of people, I think we're, we're fine with OVOs, you know, Islamic extremists, violent extremist organizations. What, what's, what's the difference? They're still, you know, bad guys. I still get to hit a target. Um, that was not the case for me. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely very, uh, you know, very, very vested in, uh, in, you know, true, definitely true, true believer in, in the cause. Well, the, the first thing that came to mind when I heard you talk about it was, and, and maybe this is a crazy thing, but the first thing that came to mind was the crusades. Um, and, and it, right then I started thinking like this, this meant something different to him. And I think it goes all the way back to you saying that's what God created you for, um, was for his glory. But you said that that's what you were made to do was to be uh, a soldier. And I, I, I feel like it, it has to mean, I don't know if I want to use the word more to you, but it definitely, I think, means something different to you, this entire thing. Whether it's in the future that we're talking about, in the past that we're talking about, this has been raging for generations after generation. I, I think it means something different to you, but but I want your opinion on on what you think the difference is that we make. Because a, a lot of people will say we're stopping them from coming over here, but I think it's something different to you. 
Well, I, I, first off, just to touch on the Crusades piece, uh, I mean, that was something that I looked at because I had always been heard that, that the Crusades were this, this, this battle of, you know, convert to Christianity or die, which is very much, that's not what Christianity teaches. You know, it's not convert or die. That, that's never been, that is not how the gospel spread in the early church. And really there, there's not a whole lot of, of examples of that's, you know, that, that's not how the gospel spreads. You know, the, <laughs> love God, love your neighbor that, you know, nowhere in there is convert or die. Um, so if you, if you actually read, uh, I believe it was Pope Urbane the second that, that, uh, you know, wrote the, I guess, declaration or the call for the first crusade, um, in 11 something that was in response to 400 years of Islamic aggression. If, and, and Islamic, you know, and, and Christian defeats across the known world. I mean, cause Islam, when, you know, when it spread, um, it was conquering, you know, early on pagan territories, you know, with, within Arabia and then very quickly, uh, moving into predominantly Christian territory. And, you know, so all North Africa, predominantly Christian, um, Palestine was predominantly Christian at the time, uh, up into parts of France, you know, Spain, France, like all those areas that that was all. And so it was after 400 years of that, that the Pope called for the first crusade in order to, you know, liberate the Holy land and protect, uh, you know, protect pilgrims trying to, to make the pilgrimage to, uh, to Jerusalem. Now, you know, in practice, you know, the, the way warfare was fought back then was significantly different. I mean, you know, raising, you know, they would, if, if, you know, and both sides did this, uh, you know, if you surround, if you laid siege to a city and they didn't surrender, like when it was, when the city fell, they let the soldiers go crazy, uh, you know, for a period of days because, you know, it was just, that was accepted practice. So I'm not, I'm not defending, you know, all of the things that were done. Cause obviously there was, there was, uh, I'll put a disclaimer in for disclaimer yeah. right here. Yeah. You know, there was atrocities committed, you know, on, on, on both sides. Um, but I, I think that the things that, you know, the West is just constantly apologizing for it instead of going, well, why, why did the crusades happen? And it's well, because Islam and it, Islam did spread by the sword. Islam was absolutely convert or die, convert, die, or pay the demi tax, which after a generation or two, people that aren't serious about their faith, they get tired of paying uh, extra high tax and not being able to carry weapons. And any Muslim can come to your house and you have to put them up for like three or seven days, something like that. Like all these things, you're a second class citizen. So if you're not serious about your faith and you want to advance in, in that society, ultimately, you know, a lot of people converted because of that because of you know e economic incentives uh so yeah I, th I think it's just you have to put the the whole crusades part of it in in context right there um was it that to me initially no it was uh it was i mean i remember sitting on the quarterdeck at, at at the command when you know the first plane hit and then went up to the team room shortly after that, saw the second plane hit and, you know, right away it was like, Hey, we're, we're going to war. Like this is, it, it's on. Uh, and you know, these people attacked us. They, they'd been attacking us in, in, you know, for years previously. And we just had never, 
you know, that was the wake up call that, Hey, these guys are actually serious. And so that, yeah, that that's definitely what it was about. And initially for me, like, a, you know, Afghanistan, I think was absolutely the right move. Iraq, um, I think in retrospect, man, what a horrible, you know, Intel failure. I mean, we all just like, what a, a massive lack of understanding, like Al Qaeda hated Saddam, you know, and, and, and vice versa. So to, you know, the fact that we got that so wrong, you know, I mean, that, that was my understanding of why we're going in here is because they're going to team up and like Saddam's going to hook AQ up with, you know, with, with bad stuff. And, you know, <laughs> they're going to hit us on the homeland again. Um, and that was, you know, I, I don't think that was the case at all. Um, and, and the Middle East, I think is, is much, much destabilized be, because of that. Uh, and then shoot in the years following that, I mean, our, our foreign policy just seems wildly inconsistent instead of just going, Hey, we should, we should have a policy that if you are a more secular leader in an Islamic country, we should probably support them to some extent, recognizing that they're all massive human rights violators. They're all, I mean, every, every single one of them, even our allies over there are, are, you know, have things that we find incredibly distasteful. So it's, well, do we want, do we want to support a guy that's distasteful, but, he keeps his stuff at home or do we want to support a guy that's distasteful? That's also turning a blind eye to guys training in, in his country that are going to perpetuate attacks on our homeland. And so I really think that that should be the litmus test for whether or not we support a, you know, a, a Islamic country. Does it ever end? Cut the grass. I mean, does no, not, I mean, not until, Christ comes back. Like, I mean, it's just, human nature is sinful. Like whether we're arguing about Islam or communism or whatever the next thing is, like we're sinful people. We're going to be fighting. Like there's not, you know, we, we shouldn't expect for things to be uh, amazing here. Right. I mean, time, times of peace are, are few and far between. I don't think the average person thinks that though. I think the average person like with the changing of names and, and giving them a, a different title and stuff. I think that, that that's what people are hoping for is that, that things will just kind of go away. I think a lot of people stick their head in the sand and expect it just to go away. And I think that that's part of the problem that gives us these foreign policies is a lot of people that are making this think as long as we make these people happy or we do things to show that we're being progressive towards them, that they'll stop doing what they're doing. Yeah. They, they look at that as weakness. That's, that's absolutely. just, they, they laugh at us behind, you know, behind closed doors, they laugh at us and they're like, you know, the pathetic, you know, weak Americans, you know, we're tricking them again. Um, you know, we're making them give us more money that we're <laughs> going to use against them. I mean, it's, that's, you know, overwhelmingly what they're doing. So the final thing I want to, uh, kind of talk about in this is there was a, a like a news article, a, a TV show that talked about, um, the state of Navy SEALs and special forces people that were maybe using, um, their popularity to gain something. I, I want to get your thoughts on it because I've asked a couple of guys that have come on the show. Wh what are your thoughts on people kind of cashing in on um, being a seal or, 
or having taken part in special operations. And what I mean by special operations, of course, is bin Laden and, and different things like that. What, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, we have a term for that. It's called pimping the trident. Okay. Uh, and guys look down on that. I mean, for sure. I mean, if you, if you look on my website, like I will say that I was at SEAL Team 3 and I was at Dev Group. You won't see any tridents on there. You won't see uh, much else about that because honestly, uh, the way I look at it is, you know, I worked hard. That that was, you know, that that is part of who I am. Uh, if you sign up for training with me because that is my background, great. But I don't want you to come back because of something that I did 10 or 15 years ago. Like I want you to come back because it was the best training you've gotten. Um, and so, yeah, I, uh, I really have a lot less patience for guys that, that, that just want to talk about, you know, what, what they did in the teams versus, Hey, what are you doing now? Uh, cause it's, you know, we're, we're constantly moving <laughs> forward. What, what are you doing now? <laughs> well, I, I, and, and I think my, my question to that is kind of the follow up to it is, is that you have a, a few that have really, um, really kind of go on, gone above and beyond that, um, of, of, <laughs> of pimping that trident out. There's, there's, there's been a few I, and some names come to mind. Um, and I wonder how does the one, how does the, the community, how does that person keep coming around? Because they're going to keep coming around because they need that identity. But, I have a feeling they're not really accepted back into that community. No, I mean, you get PNG'd when that happens, you know, per, persona non grata. And, you know, I don't, I don't care how much, how much money you're making for a speaking engagement uh, to not have your, the respect of your brothers, not worth it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. And, and I've heard that a lot of them just want people to kind of go away because it's almost started shedding a bad light not almost, but it has started shedding a bad light where you're constantly under the microscope now. And but they're uh, hugely, they're, they, they're hurting the teams by doing that. Uh, because now the, the decision makers have to go, okay, well, we've got an organization They'll We know they'll get the job done, but they'll probably all talk about it and write books afterwards. <laughs> and therefore maybe we should use a different organization that, that's maybe going to you know, keep their act together a little bit better be a little bit more professional in their, their, their post-mission handling. Um, so yeah, it's, it, I mean, it, it hurts the organization ultimately. Let's talk about what you're doing now. Uh, let's talk about Amtac blades first. Um, sure. came up with the idea. It started with a conversation with your friend. Uh, you wanted a fixed blade instead of, um, it's a fixed blade where your folding knife goes kind of deep in your pocket, sheath, all that kind of stuff. Why did you come up with the idea? We know where it came from, but why did you come up with that idea? So we, so I've, I've been blessed to be able to train with, with Sayakali and with Etienne Zakali for many years now, 05, 06 ish, something like that is when we started working with those guys. Um, and you know, so one of the things we would always joke about is that a folder is already a halfway broken knife. Uh, and so initially it was just, Hey, I'd, I'd like a tool. I would like a better tool. I live on a farm. I'd like a better tool that just fits in my pocket. And you know, it's, it's faster to deploy. Uh, 
And so really it just started as that is like, yeah, you could also use it as a weapon. Um, but generally like we, we keep our, our weapons blade on our other strong side, you know, opposite our pistols. Uh, so really originally it was just as, as the tool. And then, you know, early on during the development of it, uh, you know, we started ma making some blue ones to, to just to have in your pocket for training and just found that there's, there's a lot of times where that ended up being a little bit faster, especially if you had, you know, talking concealed carry stuff, you have maybe a couple more layers on, you know, maybe a tighter jacket and it, it takes you longer to clear, uh, that the, the, what we call the puño, the back end of the, uh, of that, that little fixed blade knife, the Northman is, is sticking out of your pocket. So it's actually, you know, quasi exposed. Most guys look at it and just see, Oh, it, you know, they see a clip and they think it must be a folder. Um, but it's really, really fast into hand. Uh, so the more I started, you know, teaching, the more I just naturally found that there was a lot of times where you would end up with, with that in your hand. Uh, now I, I would say, I think it's probably a 20 to 20 to 30% improvement in capability. Um, for, for one, it's, it's, it's another spot that you have a weapon. So if kind of the, the, the basic integrated combative system, you have your pistol on one side, you have your blade on your other strong side. So you can deploy a lethal tool with either hand, a guy that can deploy a lethal tool with either hand is an order of magnitude more dangerous than the guy that can only produce a tool with one hand. I mean, if you think about what, if you, if you grapple at all, like it's, it's easy to control one arm, you know, two on one, but if I'm going two on one on, on your gun side and you pull a blade out with your other hand, it, you know, causes a lot of problems for me. I have to approach everything completely different. If, if I'm trying to control both hands at the same time, very challenging to do. Uh, so it, it just kind of really grew from there uh, as you know, start off as this tool that, you know, more, more farm use. And then as, as it grew and then also kind of grew into, well, I'm, I do a lot of backcountry stuff. I, you know, go out hiking and rucking and skiing and snowmobiling and all that stuff a lot. And so we built in a ferro rod into, into the pocket sheath. Cause you know, that's another thing that I think as, as a man, you should always be able to build a fire, you know, your, your family, your, your life, your family's life might, might depend on that someday. So, you know, having a ferro rod is, is a very useful thing. We put a really thin layer of uh, hook pile tape on the back so that you could have uh, you know, some guys will put a hundred dollar bill or lock pick set, or, you know, I normally put a little bit of uh, take like a little micro Ziploc bag and put a single Vaseline soaked cotton ball. Right. I know with that, I can start a fire in the wintertime in, in, in our country uh, because that will very readily take a spark that I can throw very confidently, you know, off of the, you know, the fire sheath that, that comes with the Northman. So it was kind of this dual, dual purpose tool. And then the more we started training with it, the more we found that, man, like, you know, think of the times where, you know, someone's going to suplex you from behind, right. And they have their arms around your waistline. Uh, you have to be able to do grappling moves i.e drop your base create space hip forward in order to produce a tool that is on your waistline or you can just reach into your pocket and stab the guy <clears throat> same thing someone has mount on you right in order to if, if someone has mount in order for me to draw uh from my waistline either blade or gun i have to shrimp and do some stuff that you know shrimp or bump i have to do some grappling moves which take skill and strength in order to do or I can just reach into my pocket and, you know, plunge the blade into the guy's kidney. We call that fatal embrace, bring him down to your side and then right into the, you know, carotids or subclavians from there. I mean, it's, it's, uh, 
it opens up a lot more options. Uh, plus, just normal hanging out as soon as you think that there's potentially problems. You know, I hang out with a, my hand on my blade a lot and, and it just looks like my thumbs are hooked in my pockets. You know, very, very natural, uh, very natural hangout position, but uh, also a very capable one. Uh, so that's kind of that. That's where the you know the north one was the first blade that we did. Uh, kind of, I mean, it's been awesome to watch just just the growth. The first, uh, you know, thought we were really rolling the dice. You know, going in with with a hundred of them at first. And, did you sell and, out in like three hours? If I think about five hours, yeah. yeah. And it was all it was awesome. It was all students, all guys that you know. I mean, every, every email that came in, I'm like, oh, this is cool. This is one of my buddies. This is one of my buddies. And then, you know, the next hundred probably took six or nine months to sell. And then it's just, you know, the, the circle keeps growing to where now the majority of the guys that are ordering, I, I don't know who they are. Um, you know, still like we're obviously we're trying to pull guys in and on, onto the training side of things. Um, but we've had some great exposure with, uh, you know, magazine articles and, and Jack Carr's been awesome. <laughs> we're actually, there's, there's Northman usage in, uh, in the, the fourth book, the devil's hand. I interviewed um, him pretty, about a month ago. Pretty awesome. Yeah. He's, he's a good dude. Um, so yeah, it's just been, it's been a cool thing and we're, we're three models into it now. So we, we, our next model was, uh, we called it the Magnus five inch blade, a little bit bigger handle specifically designed for other strong side carry went with a five inch blade first because that's what I like, uh, fully recognizing that most people in civilian life think that a five inch blade for everyday carry is, is slightly excessive, but I'm like, Hey, my company, this is what, what we're going to do. Now? And then, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yeah, this is, this is right. And then if James the Reese carries year, one, they're fine. Yeah. The following year we, we came out with a minute man and that's the same size handle as a Magnus, but a four inch blade. I think more guys will find that, uh, uh, about right. And for everyone, anyone that has one on order, they're shipping out tomorrow. So um, I, I got buddies at work that go bananas over these. They, 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 when I told them I was interviewing you, they were like, those, those are the baddest knives on the planet. Well, we, we definitely, we, we try to make them with, uh, I mean, the, the end user in mind, you know, we, we want, I mean, we, we train with these things all the time. Uh, I mean, it's cool now to see more than 50% of the guys in classes will be rolling Amtec blades when we're doing combative training. So like there's, they're That's getting a lot of rep. Great. That's got well, it. Awesome. I mean, you, you, you've got to feel like, uh, you know, you've gone from a world where you excelled very much. So in into another world where you've excelled very much into that's gotta be. And, and I've never heard anything in your transition, in your story, anything I've ever read where, where you kind of slowed down, you know, guys will get out and whether that be law enforcement, first responder, military, and they just kind of lose purpose in life. Uh, they, they don't know really where they're going to go. And I think that once again, falls back to your religion. Um, but it doesn't seem like you've ever really lost purpose. You've, you've excelled in one gone right into another and excelled because you've always had kind of an end point in mind. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, faith, faith at the foremost has been, you know, huge. Um, and then also just great, great friends and mentors. I mean, the, the, the guys, you know, within SIOC, um, my old teammates, uh, one of my local buddies, Jay Kobach, um, 
you know, just had a lot of good advice. Northman actual over on the, over in Maine, um, you know, lot, lots of good, good friends that have helped, uh, encourage and, uh, you know, just, just help out with, you know, whether it's on, you know, on the business side or the design side or the, or just like the round table side of things, the, the talks, Hey man, like you're screwing up in this area. You should do this. Right. Um, Todd McMullen, <laughs> uh, he'll appreciate that. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's just, it, you know, these, it's, you, you can't, you can't do this stuff by yourself. It's, it's, you have to have that, you know, that, that tribe of guys around you that encourage you and, and, and will call you out sometimes as well. Let's talk about, uh, Amtac shooting, American tactical shooting instruction. Uh, the motto is train hard, know your tools and win. Um, like I said, you teach pistol, vehicle combatives, uh, rifle, medical, you run the whole you run the whole kind of gambit of it, of, of everything. And I've even seen where you incorporate rolling into knife manipulation, uh, weapon manipulation. Uh, it is a complete course that a lot of people don't give anymore. You know, you'll go to a shooting course and it'll just be shooting, but you kind of incorporate everything into yours. For sure. Uh, you know, the, the combative side of things has always been something that I, you know, been very passionate about. Um, so the way I approach everything is, uh, if there's no, right. If there's two ways of doing things and one way is combative and the other way is not combative. And they both, they both accomplish the same mission. Let's say, take for instance, loading our firearm. So I can load here. I can frame the weapon in my workspace in front of me, or I can look down and have it by my, my, my belt line. Both of those accomplish the same thing. You, you load your firearm both both ways. Um, but if we said, well, that particular thing has has two two negatives. If you're if you're loading your your firearm by your belt buckle, number one, wh where's your situational awareness going? Which that is actually the most important thing when we talk combatives is wh what's your awareness level. Um, so where's your awareness go? It, it goes to the ground right in front, right at your feet. Um, whereas if I'm framing the weapon in between myself and my potential threat. Now my awareness goes towards where my potential threat is. So I can actually, I could look at my firearm if I needed to on, on a combat reload or on you know some sort of malfunction clear, I could look at my firearm and still track on my potential threat through my periphery. So there's that. But then the next piece is, I always ask guys this, if, if me and you are getting ready to get into you know the fight of our lives, how do you want me to start? Do you want me to start up here? you know, with a weapon in between us and me looking at you, or do you want me to start, you know, with, with a weapon down by my belt buckle and my head looking down, right? And the, the obvious answer is if I'm fighting you, I want you to look down, right? Don't look at me, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, I mean, I, I do that to other people. We, you know, we call it the, the don't look at me, you know, don't look at me uh, policy, uh, you know, to manipulate people's heads. You know, don't look at me concept anytime in, in, in stand up grappling or grappling or, you know, any kind of manipulations. If you can turn someone's head offline, you, you make them weaker. And then also they bring their hands up to their face generally to try and peel that off. And if your hands are up here by your face, they're not at your waistline where most people keep tools. Um, so I'll, I'll introduce that concept. If there's two ways of doing things, they both accomplish the same thing. But one, if we say go right now and it's the fight of your life you're in a good position and the other, you're not in a good position for a fight. 
Well, then let's always pick the more combative way of doing things. So that would be you know, one of the, the big overarching principles that we try and convey. And then the other one is if all I teach you is how to do this, right? For, for anyone that's just going to be listening, I'm, I'm, I'm working my trigger finger, right? Yeah, if that's, if that'll that's be the a video thing, version too. So. Okay. <laughs> if, if that's all I'm doing is teaching guys how, how to manipulate their trigger fast, then you end up creating carpenters that only have hammers. And if you're a carpenter that only has a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, I would much rather have guys that can smash people, that can throw some elbows, some headbutts, you know, that can do some stand-up grappling, stay on their feet. Um, because if you can do that, a lot of times you can win with a significantly lower level of violence. And it's always a higher level win to win with a lower level of violence. Right. If I can win by just elbowing the guy in the face and walking away, you know, if that if that was one option, the other option was me shooting him five times. Right. It's, option A is better for me. It's better for him. It's better for my family. It's better for that guy's family. It's it's better across the board. Uh, so you have to give guys options on, you know, different things that they can do in order to, you know, to win in a violent confrontation not necessarily always going to gun or going to blade or, or something else that's, that is uh end up going to be lethal. Well, I watched uh, your episode of 100 deadly skills with Clint Emerson and you were, uh, you were definitely getting at it. Um, there was some crazy stuff I saw you do and, and very quickly, uh, <laughs> I think you uh, cut a guy's bowels out, uh, meat hooked him in the back of the neck, and shot him all in like 14 seconds. Uh, it, it was amazing to watch. And and I know that takes years, but let's talk about the person that maybe hasn't trained for years or is is just getting into it because they're realizing that society is changing, that, that they need to protect that family, uh, need to protect themselves. They look at something like that and and go, there's no way I can do that. So how do we get those people into the fold? Uh, come train with me or or with guys <laughs> that that are in in the system. I mean, uh, ultimately, like, I mean, I've got a lot of guys that that thought that that was a really hard thing to do. I mean, I remember having a guy in a class. It was a force on force class. This guy had done multiple classes before, not with me, but with other you know other guys in industry. And, you know, the first on the first go, there was a guy with a training machete that was charging him. <laughs> and, you know, of course, he gets crushed by this dude. Um, and then I debrief him. I'm like, hey, this is what I want you to do. When, you know, when, when if you if if a dude is charging you, I want you to, to sprint offline, draw your pistol and shoot him in the face. We're, we're using airsoft guns. And, and he looks at me like I'm crazy. Like, you want me to move and do a headshot one handed all at the same time? And I'm like. It's not hard, dude. Like two runs later, he's doing it. He's just, no one's ever told him that, hey, it's, this is not this is not a hard thing to do. It's not something that generally people train to do, but it's really not hard once you, you know, if you, if you have the formula for it and you teach it the right way, it's not a hard thing to do. But I don't um, think a lot of people teach the right way. I think that a lot of people go into these classes and, and you get these instructors that believe that you should know everything. Well, why take the class if you're supposed to know everything anyway? And I think that that frustrates or maybe puts people off from taking these classes. 
I, I know you've seen it in the military because I've seen it in, in law enforcement and in the military where you get these guys that, well, you don't know how to do that. Well, you're a lost cause. <laughs> They're a lost cause until you give them the cause. Why, why would you come to a class if you knew how to do everything? I mean, that's, I, that's, I, I, I mean, I, like I tell that to guys all the time when they're like, Oh, sorry, man. I'm, I'm like, why are you sorry? Like if you knew how to do all this stuff, I'd be out of a job. <laughs> right. I mean, like my, my job is to make you a more capable individual, um, regardless of what level you're at. Uh, you know, the, the things that I try and focus on with guys, you know, just to, to, to lay a couple of the, the top ones out. Number one, increase situational awareness. Number two, 100% safety with your pistol, right? If you if you're if you decide you're going to carry a, a gun at all times, uh, you are at least manipulating your firearm twice a day when you get up in the morning and when you go to bed at nighttime. If every time you manipulate your pistol, you point that thing at the wall in front of you because we all know walls are always safe, right? Uh, and your kid's head's on the other side of that wall, and you load pointing at that wall every time, you're actually putting your family's life in danger every time you load and unload your firearm in order to quote unquote protect them um so number one we have to be 100 percent safe with our tools right we have to have, we have to be very you know i tell guys hey man your, your reputation's on the line every time you handle your firearms be deliberate about it be you know be safe about it right so um because the odds of you actually using your firearm to protect yourself are very very low but if you're going to carry that means you, you're you're committing to handling your firearm at least twice a day uh, so number one, increase situational awareness. Number two, hundred percent safety with firearms. Number three, being sure that your gun's going to go bang when you want it to go bang, right? If you, if, if you don't know how to ensure that you've gone through a proper loading procedure every, every single morning, uh, again, huge, huge problem. Uh, next one would be clean draw stroke from concealment. If you can't, this is one of the things that, that, uh, gets me about, you know, kind of the, the modern state of training is everyone trains with outside the waistband holsters. No one carries outside the waistband holster. Or very few guys carry outside the waistband holsters, right? Everyone has, has something inside the waistband, right? Let, let's, let's train with what we carry. Uh, because like, who cares how fast your draw stroke is from an outside the waistband holster? You're never going to wear that anyways. Like, let's work through how, how do we safely draw and reholster that concealed carry, uh, the whatever concealed carry pistol you use in, in, in a concealed holster. Um, the next would be, and I put the next two kind of on, on the same plane, um, other strong hand only blade deployment and targeting. So being able to pull out a blade with your other strong hand and, and know where to put it and what to do post-penetration. That and combative weapons retention shooting. Basically, know, being able to punch people or elbow people while you're pulling your pistol out. Um, I, I put those next two. And, and really, those, so those items are, in my opinion, the most important when it comes to being able to protect your, yourself and your family. All the other stuff that guys, you know, how many guys put crazy amount of time and effort into combat reloads? You, sh you see it on IG all the time, the shot to shot. Like, who cares? What, you know, where is that? You know, yes, you need to be, you know, you, you need to have a, a, you need to be proficient at doing a combat reload, right? Or emergency reload. But how many guys' lives would have been saved if they had a one fat, one second faster combat reload versus how many guys' lives would have been saved 
if they had head on a swivel and saw this dude walking up, you know, from 3.30 with a pipe in his hand, right? So, I mean, we so we have to, you know, how many guys' lives would have been saved if they could have thrown a punch while pulling their pistol out at the same time? Um, you know, what does that punch do to the other guy's draw stroke or the other guy's use of his weapon? And if I can do that now while I'm throwing, you know, while I'm producing tools, you know, way, way, way better. Uh, so that, that's some of the stuff that I think is, is very valuable. I don't, you know, I, I really yeah. don't look at any of the stuff that I teach as advanced. I think it's, you know, being, being a good shooter, being good at combatives is simply being, you know, having mastered, uh, the fundamentals and, in you know, and whatever the aspect is, whether it's, you know, being able to draw and shoot something or being able to draw and stab something or being able to throw a punch, being able to transition from punches to blade or from punches to gun. Um, all those things, they're not hard. They just require reps. Um, in, in, in talking about all this, you also teach um, a group, from what I'm understanding, a, a group just in your community where it's it's fathers and sons and you you do um life lessons but you also i thought it was interesting the timing where you do like 20 minutes of training then you do devotional and then you go back into training is there a reason why it's set up like that yeah so the generally it's a little bit longer generally we'll, we'll do you know as as it was originally intended we, we would start off with you know 45 minutes to an hour of jujitsu and then we would do a 15 to 20 minute Bible lesson. And then we do another 45 minutes to an hour of some sort of a life skill and everything from shooting to, you know, building shelters, getting the boys out there, starting fires, dressing hogs, getting vehicles unstuck. Basically, if you if you made a list of what you should know as a man, it's probably on our list of things that our boys should do. Uh, the, we, we put the, the gospel in the middle because, you know, the, the idea was make it cool enough so that guys will come for, for the other parts of it. And then we'll, you know, quote unquote, suffer through the gospel. So they can't, they can't show up late or leave early and, and miss the gospel part of it. Um, <laughs> since then we kind of, you know, we've got, it's morphed several times. We kind of, for you know, we were kind of going crazy with it and it was, you know, it's, it's on a weeknight and we're out till nine o'clock at night sometimes. And that was, that was being a bit excessive. So we've kind of cut down a little bit and now generally we'll, you know, we'll either grapple uh, if, if we're rolling, we'll roll for like hour and 20 to hour and a half and then do our Bible lesson at the end. Um, but we don't have anyone leave. So uh, we're ready to tackle if they do now. Uh, so what's some of the and, things and then, that you teach in ahead. that? And when you get to the gospel part, what are you teaching them? Because you're teaching them, like you said, life skills. Now you're teaching them a different set of life skills. So what are some of the... Uh, I don't want to call them sermons because I don't think they're sermons, but what are some of the passages that you're teaching and some of the stories that you're teaching? Uh, so, you know, this year, the, the theme has been uh, becoming a stronger Christ follower and just kind of, you know, last year's theme was, you know, your identity in Christ and kind of, uh, and I think last, last week we talked on Job. And just the the suffering, you know, it was the, our second week in Job. And, you know, look at the, you know, so the first chapter in Job, you know, Satan, Satan goes before the Lord and, and, and asks to basically take away all of his wealth and, and most of his family. And God says, yeah, you can do that, but don't touch him. And then, you know, Job does not lose his faith is kind of the, the, the short version. Um, in Job chapter two, you know, devil goes back before the Lord and, and 
says, well, you know, uh, you didn't touch him. You know, like if, you know, a man would sell everything to, to like stay healthy, basically. Um, and so God says, oh, do, do what you want, but don't like, don't kill him. And so then he has all these like horrible boils and like, you know, lots of pain and like illness. And then he goes through this, like his, his wife says, curse God and die. His friends all show up and are like, you must have screwed up really bad for God to punish you like this. Um, and, and the whole time is just Job, like not, and it's, it's not Job you know, cheerful, like Job is lamenting the day he was born, you know, like he's, he is very sorrowful, but the whole time he's like, no, God, you know, God gives and God takes away, like, you know, who am I to only like expect one. Um, and so just, just talk. And, and then that led into the theme, you know, suffering for Christ. I think you were in first Peter five, 12, some, somewhere in there. And it's talking about, you know, why are you surprised when you would suffer for Christ? Like, you know, Christ suffered and, and as Christians, right, that where that term comes from was it was a derogatory term that they started giving to early Christ followers. Originally, it was just called the way, you know, this guy's a follower of the way. And then uh, they started calling them Christians because, oh, this guy's a little Christ, right? It's, it's, it's a little Christ. And they thought it was a derogatory term. Um, so if we're uh if they hated Christ to the point where they crucified him, like, why do we think that they're not going to hate us? You know, because we're not, you know, we're, we're supposed to be in the world, but not of it. But you know, the things that the Bible preaches is contrary to what the world looks as, you know, as, as wisdom, what the world looks at as, as, as right a lot of times. Um, and so, you know, we should expect persecution. We should expect things to go wrong. Um, we should expect, to have hardship. And that's honestly, it's been hugely comforting to me. Like it's been one of the things that's kind of been jumping out at me in the, in the scriptures lately, as I've been reading it is just this, this, you know, theme that man, when we have good times, that's, that's actually, you know, kind of like war, it's, you know, it's few and far between like the majority of the time, like probably expect for, for there to be battles and for there to be hardships and, you know, disappointments and, and that's just the way it is, right? I mean, on the, this side of this side of eternity, anyways. And that you know, and that's the great thing is our hope is in Christ, and is that you know, one one day He will make it all right. Well, let's tell everyone where they can find you, uh, because you you've got a, of of a lot of people that teach what you teach, you have the most interesting uh, kind of background and things that you add into your training. So where can they find you to do this? So amtechshooting.com is our training business. Uh, we have all of our courses posted on that. We should be posting for 22 here, uh, at least the first half of 22 within the next month or two. Amtechblades.com is our blade business. Uh, we are on Instagram and Facebook uh, and parlor now as well uh, with both Amtech blades and uh and Amtech shooting so yeah either of those can we get a, a price point on some of the blades for people 450 to 550 okay all right guys i think that's going to be it for tonight bill i, I want to thank you so much for coming on and, and taking the time to do this i know you're a super busy man uh, and uh i appreciate everything that you've done for your community for the country uh just kind of bringing in 
a um, simpler kind of life and, and the core values of what we need. It's, it's uh, few and far between these days. So I want to thank you for all that you do in that. Guys, that's going to be it for the show tonight. You can go to Amtac Shooting, sign up for one of the classes, Amtac Blades, uh, pick up a blade. If you want more of me, you can find me on Twitter at DoublespeakDJ. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD Podcast, and you can find me on YouTube at the DTD Podcast. You know you come here every week because the best stories are true. That's Bill. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later.